This is The Paranormal, a podcast in which two people of questionable talent and dubious virtue discuss a tale from paranormal history. Follow us on iTunes and Stitcher, and if you're so inclined, leave us a review. But in any case, on with the show. Welcome back, listeners, to part two of our episode on Harry Price. I'm joined... I say as ever, but it may not always be the case in the future, but certainly as of last episode, my friend Matt, to whom I will explain various bizarre tales of paranormal history. So when we last left off, we were discussing the intriguing career of Harry Price, Mm. magician turned psychic investigator turned alleged charlatan. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And when we last left Harry, he had been appointed director of the National Laboratory of Psychical Research, thanks to his association with the London Spiritualist Alliance. Despite the antipathy between the two organisations, the SPR, the Society of Psychical Research, was tentatively supportive of Price's project, even though there were still naysayers who opposed the NLPR's proposal to recompense mediums for testing, the NLPR being the National Laboratory of Psychical Research. So they were setting up a system where they would pay mediums to be tested. Mm, can you see any reason why people might have an incentive there to try and... Absolutely uh, not. I mean, they're all truth seekers. Okay, yeah, so... Fine. Despite such doubting voices, 250 members of the London Spiritualist Alliance paid a guinea each to get the laboratory through its first year. Okay. So 250 guineas. Yeah. I presume that's quite a lot in yep. Victorian money. With membership reaching nearly 1,000 by year two. Wow. It's a growth industry. Mm. A considerable undertaking. A laboratory contained a chemical laboratory, an x-ray machine, a seance area, a library, a dark room, an office, and a workshop. Between 1928 to 1931, the laboratory conducted investigations into several prominent mediums and associated phenomena. One of these studies regarded Pasquale Erto, the luminous wonder of Naples. <laughs> Erto was an Italian medium, famous for appearing completely nude in the seance room, and for producing sparks that shot out of his backside. I think you, that's infamous, not famous. <laughs> Like I said, there's all this weird stuff mixed up with mediumship. Naked, stuff shooting out your backside. Indeed. He would also materialise famous figures such as Charlemagne and Pope Leo III and enter into trance states. <laughs> when examined by Price, Erto entered a trance and attempted to undress Harry, although Harry stopped him before the lower half of his clothing was removed. <laughs> so I'm guessing he got his shirt off, which is a little odd. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't stop him at that point. No, no, also, you... I mean, Victorian clothing. Yeah. Quite layered. Yeah. I presume. Uh, then Erto entered a deep trance and began to shriek, after which flames and sparks alighted across his body. The next morning, Harry found traces of ferrocerium, the synthetic alloy used as flint in cigarette lighters, in the laboratory. He concluded Erto was a fraud. Later it was found that Erto produced sparks from his rectum by hiding iron filings up his bottom, which he ignited by vigorously rubbing his buttocks together. And that proved the existence of ghosts. This is why Netflix is so important, because in the, in the days before Netflix existed... This is what people did for shits and giggles. You'd have a very familiar, and I mean familiar in terms of getting familiar with you, Italian mm. gentleman mm. stripping nude mm. and jumping up and down, producing sparks from his rear. Well, it's either that or watching the new series of Orange is the New Black. And I, <laughs> I think I know which one I'd rather have. Erto. It's, it's Honeyman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. In the late 1920s and the early 1930s, Harry retested Rudy Schneider, who he had so enthusiastically endorsed years before. Mm. 
in a setup similar to that of Sir William Crook's testing of Anna Fay, Harry bound Rudy and then linked him to a circuit that would flash if the circuit broke, indicating Rudy was attempting to escape his controls and manually produce the psychic phenomena. The usual stuff occurred during Rudy's testings. Bells were rung, handkerchiefs were tied, a zither was played. All the usual stuff. Mm. And all without the device alerting Harry to Rudy escaping his controls. Critics did point out that the device could be circumvented. If Harry crossed his arms and legs, for example, uh, if Rudy, pardon me, crossed his arms and legs, for example, he could complete the circuit but still break his bonds. So it's not foolproof. Probably what you're saying. Nonetheless, Harry was very satisfied and placed a notice in the papers offering £1,000 to any conjurer who could reproduce Rudy's powers under similar conditions with no takers. Oh, they thought of just maybe watching him, obviously, did it? <laughs> yeah, watching him closely yeah. and making sure he wasn't up to no good. Yeah, or, yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1931, the NLPR undertook its most prominent case to date, that of notorious medium Helen Duncan. Yeah. She was a materialisation medium who claimed to summon spirits that manifested in ectoplasm she emitted from her mouth whilst in a trance. Duncan had previously been exposed as a fraud a few years prior when she'd been photographed at a seance presenting a spirit that was found, in fact, to be a doll. <gasps> Naughty Helen. That is poor. Well, you get into this thing as well, what they call mixed mediumship. Yeah. And a lot of what people will do then and now yeah. to explain why people that they believe to have generally paranormal powers mm. are exposed as faking, saying they fake some of the time so as not to disappoint people or not to rob their own livelihood of, of a okay. successful performance. So some of it's real and some of it isn't. And all the stuff that you catch them on is when they're not doing it properly and right. all the other stuff is, is real. It's real. Yeah. So their definition of real is the stuff you didn't catch me cheating on. Yes. It's very useful. Harry was understandably sceptical regarding Duncan. Uh, and believed that she was swallowing and regurgitating cheesecloth as her ectoplasm. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's quite common, apparently. Harry tested a sample of ectoplasm produced by Duncan and proved that it was as he suspected and made of cheesecloth. The rest of the test seances did not go well. Duncan reacted violently to attempts to x-ray her, running from the laboratory and making a scene in the street, where her husband had to restrain her. Wow. Harry suspected she had done this in order to pass the fake ectoplasm to her husband, who would then hide it away. According to Price... Uh, and this is in his writings later on. Mm-hmm. I leave the reader to visualise the scene. A 17 stone woman clad in black satin tights, locked to the railings, screaming at the top of her voice. Stop, stop that. <laughs> you, you had me at the 17 stone woman tied to the radiator. A crowd collected and the police arrived. The medical men with us explained the position and prevented them from fetching the ambulance. We got her back to the laboratory, and at once she demanded to be x-rayed. In reply, Dr. William Brown turned to Mr. Duncan and asked him to turn out his pockets. He refused and would not allow us to search him. There was no question that his wife had passed in the cheesecloth in the street. However, they gave us another seance, and the control said we could cut off a piece of teleplasm. So control there is her spirit guide, essentially. Uh, Her way into the spirit world. So as she channels the control, control says that they could cut off a piece of teleplasm, the ectoplasm, when it appeared. Indeed. The sight of half a dozen men, each with a pair of scissors waiting for the word, was amusing. (laughs) It came and we all jumped. One of the doctors got hold of the stuff and secured a piece. The medium screamed and the rest of the teleplasm went down her throat. This time it wasn't cheesecloth. It was proved to be paper soaked in the white of an egg and flattened into a folded tube. Could anything be more infantile than a group of grown men wasting time, money and energy on the antics of a fat female crook? I can't think of anything, but, you know... I was sort of with him to the end. I don't know why he needs to body shame the poor woman. Yeah, why are they mention the 17 stone part? That's not He's nice. quite put out. I, th- I think, essentially, you've got a bit of Victorian patriarchy sneaking in. He's quite put out that he's had his time wasted by a woman, and worse than yeah. that, oh a God. fat woman. Gosh, what is the world coming to? 
Indeed. Mm. Uh, Duncan would go on to be the last person to be imprisoned under the British Witchcraft Act of 1735, really? which made it uh, legal to falsely proclaim uh, to procure spirits. At their 1944 trial, <laughs> Harry gave evidence in relation to this 1931 testing of her abilities. So it was illegal to falsely claim to be uh, yep. a witch? Yep, you could legally... But it was also illegal to be a witch? It was illegal to claim to have witchy powers. Right. Although, I suppose if you could prove the reality of said witchy powers, it wouldn't be a crime. No, they just burn you or drown <laughs> you in the pond. I mean, it was, it was 1944, they probably didn't burn her. No, we were a waste I think of they just, just gave her a fine. Oh, okay. All right. Soon after the Duncan investigation, Harry also had to revise his enthusiasm regarding Rudy Schneider. In 1932, a photograph from one of Harry's sittings with Rudy showed that the medium had managed to free his arm and move a handkerchief from the table. No. A disgruntled Harry conceded the findings of the other experiments should be revised due to the evidence showing that Rudy could free himself from the controls. So he's had to ditch old Rudy. Harry and his laboratory had exposed these three fakers, Schneider, Duncan and Erto, as frauds. It was also during this time that Harry became unveiled in one of the most notorious haunted house cases in English history, Borley Rectory. Yes. Which is in Essex, strangely enough. Borley Rectory was built in 1862 by the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull. Too many names. (laughs) The house was built on the site of an earlier rectory that had been destroyed by fire in 1841. Although ghostly footsteps were apparently heard in the 1860s, it wasn't until the 20th century that Borley Rectory's reputation for the paranormal became established. Mm-hmm. Henry Dawson Ball's son, Harry, now occupied the rectory with his four daughters. Sorry, another Harry? Or, no, so this, this is, is, no, this this is, is Harry, Harry? Harry Price? No, this is Harry Ball now. He won't be in the story for long, don't There's worry. at least three Harrys in this story. There's a lot of Harrys. Yeah. A lot of Harrys. Does Prince um, Harry come into this at any point? <laughs> no. No? Okay. So Henry Dawson Ball's son, Harry, now occupied the rectory with his four daughters and claimed to have seen a phantom coach driven by two headless men travel across the fields near the rectory. Mm-hmm. And his daughters claimed to see the spirit of a nun walk by the rectory at night. They tried to speak with the spirit, but it disappeared. In 1928, Harry Ball died, and the rectory passed to Reverend Guy Smith and his wife, Mabel. They disliked living in the rectory. The house was cold. Water had to be drawn from a well, and the roof was in such bad condition that several of the rooms could not be lived in. They contacted a reporter from the Daily Mirror in 1929 mm-hmm. and described mysterious creaking noises, the sound of footsteps, and the atmosphere of doom and foreboding. The Daily Mirror ran with the story, describing the cold rooms, odious smells, tapping mirrors, bells ringing of their own accord, and frightful groaning. So they've. It's a slow news day, then, wasn't it? That was... they, they sexed up the dossier yeah, a little bit in that yeah, one. Yeah. The Smiths may have had an ulterior motive. They wished to leave the rectory and had contacted the diocese for aid. So they want to get out of their shit house. Saying that it's haunted might be a good way of doing it. Yeah, that's one good way, isn't it? The Smiths later explained that they only contacted investigators to dispel the myths around the haunting that had been propagated by the Bulls and their various family members, and not in response to any paranormal experience. Whatever the case, the Mirror contacted the SPR, who in turn dispatched Harry, Harry Price. Once Harry arrived, the poltergeist phenomena began to escalate. Keys were thrown, coins began to fall from nowhere, and Harry conducted a seance which prompted blue sparks to appear. Blue sparks? Ah, now we know about sparks, don't we? He apparently made contact with the spirit of a dead man, which communicated via taps on a mirror. Harry left the next day, and although two other mediums came to keep up watch, no further phenomena took place. Wow. Mm. Mrs. Smith would later say, We could not help but suppose that Mr. Price was producing some of the effects. Oh, they are so cynical. Well, you think quite scandalous. This, yeah. is this, this is the heroic figure who exposed the farty, sparking Italian man <laughs> and Old the fart, fat female sparky. crook. And now you're stressing that he might be less than uh, honourable himself. Yes, I think it's quite terrible to speak it, it uh, is, him yeah. in that way. Especially speaking of the dead. <laughs> he, he is dead, right? 
Well, yes. Good. Yes. So, he, he died in the late 40s. Okay. As continues to this day, ghost hunters and paranormal enthusiasts flock to Borley, uh-huh. with one firm from a nearby town running ghost trips. The Smiths, potentially due to the disturbance of all this interest, were moved by the authorities to another parish. They got what they wanted. Mission successful. Yeah. Harry returned to investigate the now empty rectory, recording several odd phenomena. When a Daily Mail journalist accompanied Price and his assistant to the rectory to examine this phenomena, Harry noted a broken window, which he claimed had been smashed by poltergeist activity. All of a sudden, the neighbouring window spontaneously smashed. Wow. Mm. As the journalist relayed, within two or three seconds of Price pointing out to me the glassless frame of this window, its neighbour suddenly smashed, and another cascade of glass tumbled down. Just before this, I realised Price had taken a step behind me. I heard a swishing sound as if a missile had been thrown, and then the window broke. As they descended some stairs, half a brick rolled down. The journalist grabbed Harry, believing him to be responsible for the so-called phenomena, and found that his coat pockets were full of stones. Yeah, well maybe he'd been doing some gardening and had just put mm. the stones in the... Yeah. So as cynical. The male, however, feared that Harry would sue if they ran so naked an expose of his activities, and instead ran a neutral piece that let Harry off the cook. That's horrendous. <laughs> Which paper breaking. is this? Uh, it's that bastion of journalistic integrity, Daily. the Daily Mail. Daily Mail. See, I expect more from them. I expect them to uh, gleefully expose yeah. any sort of celebrity fraud. Yeah. But yeah, there you go. Harry left Borley Rectory alone for a while. I wonder why. He had, in any case, other problems on his mind, including the fact that the running costs of his laboratory, exacerbated by the fact he had yet to endorse any actual psychical phenomena, were becoming too high to realistically sustain. Mm. The LSA stepped in to help, announcing that it would rebrand as the London Alliance of Psychic Science and the National Laboratory of Psychical Research and take over the lab. However, still smarting from their occasionally combative relationship in the past, Harry spurned the takeover at the last minute and withdrew from the plan to amalgamate. Stupid. I know, he's a bit of a self-defeating figure. Mm. Harry did approach the SBR, but they rejected his offer to continue as lead investigator if the laboratory was handed over. So they said, we'll have your laboratory. We're not so hot on you, Harry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Harry then tried the Georg August Universet in Göttingen, Germany. This was an attractive move, given that the prestige of that university and Germany's more robust enthusiasm for spiritualism at the time. However, they too passed on the laboratory after reading some of Price's supportive articles of otherwise dubious seances. What about the whole uh, German's fondness of Nazis at the time? Well, it's only, uh, it's only 1930. Oh, so, so it's fine. You know, it's still the Weimar era. Adolf, lovely bloke. Yes, go on. Harry remained keen on Germany as the eventual home of his laboratory, though. Mm. In a synchronous turn of events, as Harry relays in his autobiography, in November 1931, an unknown person left a manuscript in Harry's office called the Blocksburg Trist. Mm-hmm. An unknown person. Yeah. Harry identified this as a translation of the Black Book, a 15th century German volume containing a magical rite for changing a virgin male goat into a beautiful youth. Harry... T- <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> Harry told the press of his intention to carry out this rite. Oh dear. The magical ritual would entail Harry spreading a fair ointment composed of bat's blood, soot, bees' honey, and the scrapings from a church bell over a goat and a young actress. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still married at this point. Yeah, yeah I think she's quite good, a good look woman. to him. Yeah, she must be. What do you scrape from a church bell? I don't know. Odd. But it's not going to uh, it's not going to help you turn a goat into a young person, is it? No, it's just mould, presumably. Yeah. I'm not really sure why the young actress needs to be there as well, unless she's going to turn into a goat afterwards. <laughs> In Harry's defence, 
he said he would conduct the ritual to prove the fallacy of transcendental magic. Of course, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. That's June, great because you can't. So if it works, you, you're uh, you a hero. Go into a man. Yeah, well done. A beautiful and, youth. Yeah, and if it doesn't work, you can go. Well, he said, I told you it was stupid. Mm. It's quite a cunning ploy. It is quite cunning. Yeah. In June, Harry and his entourage, including the goat, arrived at the summit of the Brocken, highest of the Hearts Mountains in Saxony-Anhalt, to perform the ritual. There were several journalists, a movie crew, and numerous politicians, artists, and members of the public in attendance. Harry, in evening dress, began to intone Latin incantations. The actress poured red wine over the goat, and then Harry applied the ointment to the goat and to the actress's chest. He then threw a sheet over the goat and counted to ten. When the sheet was removed, the goat was still a goat although one of the clairvoyants in attendance, Eric Jan Hassanen, who was an early advisor to Hitler and whose prediction of the Reichstag fire more than likely called his assassination by the SA, ran forward and produced from under the sheet a dwarf clothed in German national dress. <laughs> so as the, the headlines from that, they poured red wine on a goat, Harry smeared the ointment on the actress's chest, yeah, and then Hitler's astrologer ran up and produced a dwarf in lederhosen. All I can think of is waste of wine. It sounds like a good night. It does sound like a good night. Actually, it sounds like most of my Friday nights when I was younger. So, the, sorry, is he saying that the dwarf was already hiding underneath the... I think the idea was was that they were going to have the, the dwarf in Lederhosen pop out in the role of the beautiful youth. Yeah. But fucked it up. Yeah. And also, how are they going to get rid of the goat? I don't know. Perhaps it was drunk on the red wine. No. And also, this uh, the young actress's breasts... Yes. Does it mention anything more about them? <laughs> Only that they're covered in a mixture of bat's blood, soot, bees, honey, and the scrapings from a church bell. So, I mean, if that does it for you... Well, you know... It's a very specific it's, fetish. That is a very, very niche fetish, yeah. The event made Price a lot of money, although it perhaps cost him his reputation. Despite, or perhaps because of this ridiculous event, he was soon asked to investigate a telepathic talking mongoose on the Isle of Man. No. <laughs> <laughs> The mongoose, named Jeff, was apparently the guest of the Irving family of Cashin's Gap, Isle of Man. The family comprised of James, Margaret and their teenage daughter, Voiri, claimed they heard persistent scratchings and animal noises in the wall of their house. Eventually, the unseen entity started to pick up human language from the family and before long introduced itself. It told them that their name was Jeff and that he was a mongoose born in New Delhi, India in 1852. Right. Yeah, this is a thing that happened. Again, life on the Isle of Man must be really dull, must not it? <laughs> I also like that, sort of hidden in that description, if you ignore the telepathic talking mongoose, yeah. it also requires, even if you ignore that, it requires you to believe that the mongoose was 80-odd years old. Mm. I don't know how long a mongoose lives, but I'm willing to bet it's not over 80 years. I'm also willing to guess that. Where does it come from? Somewhere in India? Uh, New Delhi. I think there New, are New mongooses Delhi. in India. There might be, but I bet none of them are called Jeff. I don't think there's many mongooses on the Isle of Man, or perhaps more appropriately. Jeff with a G as well, but Jeff, G-E-F, not... (laughs) G-E-O-F-F. Jeff told the family that he was an extra, extra clever mongoose, and although generally pleasant in his manner, he could occasionally be rude, saying things such as, I have been in nicer homes than this, carpets, piano, satin covers on polished tables, I'm going back there, ha ha ha. (laughs) Once claiming, I could kill you all, but I won't. Which I actually find really sinister. Well, I could kill you. Well, no, well, no, it's, uh, I noticed I didn't say I won't. I'm just, I know, I only mean, could. Yeah. I mean, anything's physically possible. Yeah, isn't it? yeah it's true. Could. Well, not anything. Uh, he gave a good account, this is Jeff, <laughs> why he could not be seen by anyone, <laughs> stating, I'm a freak. I have hands and I have feet. And if you saw me, you'd faint. You'd be petrified, mummified, turned into stone or a pillar of salt. 
He claimed he was an earthbound spirit and a ghost in the form of a mongoose. He once apparently stated, I'll split the atom. I am the fifth dimension. I am the eighth wonder of the world. Right. So he's got a fairly big head in all this, hasn't he? He's yeah. fairly, yeah. Well, that's the thing that I'm, I'm going to admit it now. I'm genuinely frightened of this mongoose because <laughs> it's all the sort of jaunty stuff he comes out with. Like, oh, I could go somewhere else. Ha ha ha. I'm the eighth wonder of the world. And then all of a sudden he's, I could kill you. Despite these odd pronouncements, yes. Jeff was helpful to the Irvings. He guarded their house and would inform them for the approach of any guests. He would kill rats and rabbits and would even turn off the stove if it were left on overnight. Oh, he's a good boy. The family would give Jeff biscuits, chocolates and bananas in a special saucer suspended from the ceiling and they gave him a den at the top of the cupboard. The family all said they saw Jeff, stating that he resembled a stoat, ferret or weasel, yellow in colour with a body about nine inches long. Jeff even accompanied the family to the market, talking them to them from the hedges along the way. Didn't, didn't. No, I think they're all lying. He also told them he would ride around on the back of motor cars to get to other towns and would hear all the town gossip. <laughs> there was periodic interest in Jeff from the press, and at least two journalists claims to have seen him. What? The family also provided pictures of Jeff, although most people believed it was really just a picture of their sheepdog. Harry and a colleague investigated Jeff, making several findings. Sorry, he was a nine-inch long... I think uh, using a cunning uh, manipulation of perspective. Yeah, okay. okay. As in photographing it from afar. Very long way away. Harry and a colleague investigated Jeff, making several findings. After being provided with samples of hair and cast paw prints allegedly made by Jeff, Price had them examined. The hairs were found to be dog hairs, and the prints, together with apparently tooth marks that could not be matched to any known animal. Wow. Although the Natural History Museum, who undertook the examination, advised mm. they may have been conceivably made by a dog. <laughs> that is a known animal. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly none of the markings were made by a mongoose. Oh, Harry also observed that the house was constructed in such a way that the space between the wooden interior and the stone exterior allowed voices to be carried all around the house. Oh, mm. he's ruining all my my fun ideas here. No. Harry's up to his old tricks. He's debunking the fun stuff. Yeah. And then making and then some bollocks stuff. Rubbing himself. fair ointments on maidens. Yeah. Tellingly, Harry never saw Jeff, uh, and there were no occurrences while he stayed at the house. So at least we know he's not making it up for a change. Yeah. As he later wrote, Jeff returned to the farm on the same e- evening as we left it. Perhaps we passed him on the way down the mountain. He told Mr. Irving that although he had a few days holiday, he was present on the house during our visit and heard all that we said. He gave various excuses for not showing himself, one of which was that Mr. Lambert, who's the other experimenter, was a doubter. He admitted to knocking over a saucepan of water in the living room. After our return home, this clever mongoose made impressions of his paws and teeth in plasticine and Mr. Irving sent them to me. Mm. Harry later wrote that he couldn't decide whether he'd taken part in a farce or a tragedy. Oh, Which is quite, quite perceptive uh, of Harry. It, it is really, isn't it? Yeah. Harry was also drawn back to Borley Rectory, which was now inhabited by Lionel and Marianne Foister, cousins to the Bulls and their adopted daughter Adelaide. They reported the usual phenomena, poltergeist activity, bells ringing, ghostly figures, etc., but also many new occurrences such as voices, mysterious fires, uh, and another round of activity very much centred on Marianne Foister. Here is a small collection of what occurred, taken from Lionel Foister's diary. October the 16th, 1930. Jugs and other utensils disappearing and coming back. Peculiar smells, especially one most nearly resembling lavender, noticeable particularly in our bedroom. Bells rung. Do you think that could have been lavender? In a bed where very possibly. Yeah, yeah. A bracelet detached from the wristwatch while Marianne is in a room only a few feet away and no one else in the house beside Adelaide. Bracelet was taken and has never been seen since. February 25th. A big return of crockery that had previously unaccountably disappeared. Marianne asks for a teapot. This is also returned. Do you think it maybe was put in the wrong cupboard and they found it? 
I, I find if I can't find something covered, I wander around my kitchen asking for it to be returned. Yeah, yeah. And I look in another cupboard and it's there. Yeah, it's amazing. So, that is, that is strange. March the 7th. Marianne thrown at in the afternoon. In the evening, I attempt to exercise the spirits. Stone hits me on shoulder. Books thrown out of shelves in Marianne's sewing room. Pictures in hall and staircase taken down and laid on ground. March 10th. A little pile of five stones found behind Marianne's pillow when she woke up in the morning. More objects carried in the house. A stone through a pane of glass in staircase window. I should check Harry wasn't outside with his pockets full of stones. <laughs> yes, so. yeah. March 28th. Marianne sees a monstrosity. <laughs> Turns out to be a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Seen by her and others on occasion near the kitchen door. It touches her on the shoulder with an iron-like touch. Iron-like touch when she, it burnt her. That kind well, of iron. No, I don't, I don't think it was a steam iron. <laughs> it was a cold art piece I, I, of iron. I never thought of it like that. Iron-like touch. Can you imagine? Oh, it just feels just like iron. Yeah. It's <laughs> a weird thing to say. May. Marianne sees paper in the air. It falls to the ground. It's discovered to have some hardly decipherable writing on it. Next day when we came up, it had disappeared. <laughs> so wind and gravity combined. And, yeah. and the iron-like touch. Yeah. I like the monstrosity as well. There's no attempt to describe what it was. It's just a monstrosity. Mm. Where have you been Where today? were you? I saw a <laughs> I was not born. Oh, well, okay. I was yet to be formed. Mm. I'll have you know. Harry had his doubts. <laughs> Probably because yeah. he knew he wasn't doing it for a change. Yeah. He wrote to a colleague, It's the most amazing case, but amazing only in so far that we're convinced the main phenomena that we saw was fraudulent, because we took steps to control various rooms and persons and the manifestation ceased. Mm-hmm. Harry suspected Marianne Foister was responsible, although he dismissed her active agency in falsifying the hauntings purposefully in a rather typical way by saying, It's possible the actions may be the result of hysteria. Oh, bless her, so she was... She's just a crazy woman. Mad, that, not bad. That insane womb inside her that drove her to... Yes. Yeah. Nevertheless, none of this stopped Harry from writing many books about Borley and publicly exclaiming it to be the most convincing and best documented case of haunting, especially poltergeist haunting, in the annals of psychic research. As for Marianne Foister, in later interviews she stated that she suspected that Lionel may have fabricated some of the incidents with investigators, and later still said that she'd been in a sexual relationship with the lodger, Frank Peerless, and that she faked the paranormal incidents to cover up their liaisons. It's worth noting, however, that she had a rather sharp sense of humour and may have been playing along with her interviewers at these times. Another lodger, Louis Mailing, eventually gave his account in a book published uh, over the last few years, stating that the Bullsmith's foisters were all in on the hoaxing over the years. The ringing of the servants' bells was accomplished by Mailing and others prodding the servants' bells through barred windows over a well in the kitchen, and the magic piano that apparently claimed played by itself was actually manipulated by plucking the piano strings with a poker from the safety of a nearby gap in the wall. Oh, clever. The Foisters, hard up for money, had actively engaged Mailing in the hoax, encouraging him to walk around the garden at dusk in a black cape and a turned-up collar to pose as a headless monk. The odd construction of the house also played its part. Sea sand had been used on the walls in place of regulation material, causing a permanent dampness which allowed the walls to be written on, while also allowing that writing to disappear over a few hours. The mysterious noises reported by the Foisters could also be explicable by a new water heater which emitted heavy knocking sounds. In addition, the skirting boards were lined with phosphorus powder, which catches fire when exposed to the air, explaining the mysterious blazes. What? Why would you line your wooden house with phosphorus? <laughs> I would line my wooden house with a notoriously flammable substance. So Borley Rectory, still it's thought of as big, the most haunted. Con. Yeah, probably wasn't haunted. Oh dear. This is so disappointing. I know it is, isn't it? Yeah. In 1932, Harry approached the University of London as a possible home for his laboratory. Although, despite initial interest, he was again rejected. Beginning to think the problem is Harry. Yeah. Mm. There's a a common thread here, isn't there? 
on the verge of having to dissolve uh, the laboratory, a number of supportive friends uh, helped with the cause, including academics and philosophers uh, who formed the University of London Council for Psychic Investigation. Nothing to do with the University of London. No, you that before they yeah. sue you as well. <laughs> <laughs> they took over the laboratory and appointed Harry as the honorary secretary. He continued his investigations, looking into firewalking, rope tricks and escapology. So he's still getting dumb. Mm. In 1935, Harry began to explore the possibility of transferring the laboratory to Germany. By 1937, the proposal had gained legs. And Harry had gained the attention of a particularly influential patron, Adolf Hitler. No way. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Harry visited Germany in April that year as a guest of the Third Reich. Oh, dear. Although Harry later claimed to have not met Hitler, mm-hmm. Hitler was in the area at the time of his visit, mm-hmm. and it seems likely that Harry was fudging the truth retrospectively. Additionally, Harry had written to Dr. Dingwall in 1939, stating he had personally uh, drafted a letter to Hitler asking if he could attend that year's Nuremberg rally. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> Fate was against Harry as always, however, and the outbreak of the Second World War put pay to the Third Reich sponsoring the laboratory. Yeah. Eventually, it was wound down, with much of the equipment donated to Guy's Hospital, where it remains to this day. Wow. In 1937, Harry returned to Borley Rectory for the final time, taking out a year-long rental agreement on the now-empty property, the Foisters having departed in 1935. He recorded 48 observers, mainly students, to help observe any phenomena at the property. Unsurprisingly, very little was reported, unless Harry himself was present. Mm. One touring observer who witnessed mysterious writings on the wall found they only appeared when Price was with them, concluding that he was drawing them in pencil shortly before they were discovered. (laughs) (laughs) Measures such as thermographs were employed to detect any mysterious changes in temperature, a practice which ghost hunters employ even now, but they failed to detect anything. One of the only recorded incidents was on Harry's very last visit to the property, an apparently levitating brick that was photographed mid-flight in the kitchen passage. Levitating mid-flight, so thrown. Very famous ghosty picture one you can find online easily uh, unfortunately what Harry neglected to mention uh, and which can be seen in the original uncropped version of the photograph were the workmen nearby who were demolishing the hall <laughs> is that true again yes <laughs> the levitation brig that had just flown up from a wall that had been knocked down yeah. what is notably absent in the circulated image is the workman who appears to have just thrown the brick <laughs> in March 1938 a seance was held in which allegedly the spirit of a young, man, a young nun made contact identifying herself as Marie Lair. Marie claimed she was a French nun who had left a religious order and travelled to England to marry a member of the Waldgrave family, the owners of Borley's 17th century manor house, Borley Hall. She was said to have been murdered in an older building on the site of the rectory and a body either buried in the cellar or thrown in a disused well. A second spirit made itself known, declaring its name was Sunex Amuras and claimed it would set fire to the rectory at 9 o'clock that night, 27th of March 1938. Have you just found that brick? I have found that photograph, yeah. And it does appear to be indeed a, a brick levitating midair. I just can't find the, uh, the uncropped version. At that time, the bones of a murdered person would be revealed. Neither of these events occurred, although the rectory did indeed burn down the following year wow. after its owner accidentally knocked down an oil lamp in the hallway. This was widely believed to be an act of insurance fraud. <laughs> Harry kept a watchful eye over the wreckage and in 1943 conducted a dig into the rectory's cellars, uncovering fragments of a skull and a jawbone. Although Harry tried to attribute the find to others, it seemed from witnessed accounts that he produced at least the jawbone, after locals who looked at the skull fragments concluded they were from a pig. <laughs> Harry, in basic retirement following the wind-up of his laboratory, continued to write, including his autobiography Search for the Truth, and having written two books on Borley Rectory, sought commission for a third. He also revived the Ghost Club, an exclusive enthusiast circle which continues to this day. 
On March 28, 1948, a time that he was still working on his third Borley book, Harry unexpectedly died while at home from a heart attack, uh, oh. putting to an end a quixotic dual career of debunker and bunker. It's likely that despite his clear charlatanism, he appears to be remembered, even in sceptic communities, with something like affection. That is a fantastic story <laughs> for a very interesting guy. That's yeah. brilliant. He complete charlatan, but yeah. also exposed other charlatans. I think he's one of those, uh, you know, likable rogue, maybe. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he certainly got on with Hitler. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> it's a good test of character. Don't judge him. Judge a man by his company. <laughs> what does that say about us? Uh, indeed. <laughs> I particularly like that as soon as the Second World War broke out, he's like, I never met Hitler. <laughs> oh, that Hitler. <laughs> yeah. I saw I thought it was a different need of the Third Reich. <laughs> yeah. mm, or Hitler. Mm. That is amazing <sighs> stuff, actually. It's good stuff. Harry yeah, it is. Um, I'm genuinely amazed how much stuff there is about him, actually, how much stuff you can find out, how much mm. research you've done. I have to say, I was greatly uh, helped by the Harry Price website, which mm-hmm. contains extracts from all of his uh, work. And although he's perhaps a little kinder to Harry than we were, mm. uh, he's very helpful. Uh, an additional several sort of newspaper articles and Wikipedia and etc. is also very useful. And Richard Morris's book, uh, Harry Price, the Psychic Detective, absolutely excellent and quite um, frank about Harry's failings. Uh, and there's loads of stuff in that book that we didn't touch upon at all yeah. in any of our two episodes. So I thoroughly recommend anyone pick that up. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah. We're done. I like that. <coughs> it's a good format, yeah.